Alan Kohler here with Talking Finance, and this week we've got a great lineup for you. Starting off with Professor Ian Harper, a member of the Reserve Bank Board and Dean of Melbourne Business School, talking about the economy at the moment. Also, Patricia Carvellis, host of National Rap on ABC News and Drive on Radio National, talking about politics. Michael McCarthy, Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets, updates us on the markets. And we've got an interesting story from David Rumbins, partner at Deloitte Access Economics, who's put out their latest retail forecast, which is quite interesting. I'm joined now by Professor Ian Harper, Dean of Melbourne Business School at the University of Melbourne and a member of the Reserve Bank Board. And uh, he's going to take us through today's employment data, what it means, and also the trade confabulation going on. Well, Ian, a very, very good uh, uh, labour market figures today. Um, do you think that that's an indication that the uh, the Australian economy is on track now, that, um, that it is starting to perform properly? I certainly think so, Alan. They are extraordinary numbers and very welcome indeed. Strong full employment growth and uh, record high participation rates, particularly for females. Uh, the stronger the growth in employment, of course, the sooner we'll see a lift in wages growth, uh, and those are both things that we've been uh, forecasting at the bank, and um, other economists have been forecasting the same, and looks like we're on track. Um, is there any sign yet in an, uh, of an increase in wages growth? Not across the board. Uh, the wage price index is still sitting uh, at about 2.1, and uh, you know, until we saw a stronger growth in the wage price index, then you'd have to say there's no uh, widespread evidence of a, of a breakout yet. But, you know, the strong employment growth, uh, surely, uh, that has to put pressure on uh, on wages at some point. I suppose the question, or the, uh, I suppose the main connection really is not so much between unemployment and wages growth, but underemployment, which seems to have taken over in a way uh, from, you know, from unemployment in terms of um, the main influence on wages. And, and that seems to be improving as well at the moment. Yeah, that's right, Alan. They're both measures of, um, uh, if you like, overcapacity or underutilisation in the labour market. Uh, most economists, as you and your listeners would probably be aware, would point to 5% unemployment as a measure of full employment. We're still a touch above that. Uh, but the underemployment rate, no one has a particular view about where that should be, other than we'd like it to be lower than higher, uh, is coming down in the right direction. So the evidence, again, is the labour market is gradually tightening. Uh, as a result of more jobs being often taken up by people, particularly in full-time employment, and that's to be welcomed. Um, just moving on to global issues, um, obviously the trade uh, war concerns have been ratcheting up lately. How dangerous do you think the this trade war problem is? If it remains between the United States and China, then that's relatively contained. Um, the, the most The major contagion effect is through confidence, Alan. If, if um, business confidence takes a hit elsewhere in the world, even without you know any justification other than that, well, this looks very bad, then of course that can quickly produce uh, negative impacts around the world. When it comes to our own circumstances here in Australia, I guess it's useful for people to remember that you know it's an ill wind which blows nobody any good. That that we will pick up to some extent. Some you know, the Chinese basically can't do business in the United States then. They've got to do more business elsewhere with third countries, either directly with us or with other countries who then deal with us. Uh, so the impact on us is not as negative as some people are inclined to think, unless, of course, this confidence thing takes over and then everybody gets hit by that. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that this is happening uh, uh, the 10th anniversary of the GFC, um, or at least the collapse of Lehman Brothers in uh, September 2008. Um, do you think that there's a connection, apart from the fact that it's 10 years, that, uh, that really one thing, in a sense, led to the other, which is the rise of populism in the US and, and the, now the trade war? Well, I think if you're looking for an economic cause of um, political uh, difficulties in around the world, really, you should say the divisions that have arisen, uh, it, it, I think it comes back to, to wages and income distribution. It clearly isn't jobs. Unemployment in the United States is at a 40-year low. Uh, and the major economies, the United States, Japan, the UK, they all have unemployment rates below the natural rate. Uh, we're getting close, as we said a moment ago. We're not below yet. But all the labor markets are tightening. People have got jobs. Alan, the difficulty is that wages aren't growing rapidly, and in some cases, real wages haven't risen for lengthy periods of time. Meanwhile, incomes of those who've got you know, more assets have gone up, and it's that widening dispersion of income where people feel they're not actually participating in general prosperity. I mean, you know, that uh, has traditionally been a source of political unrest, and I think nothing's changed in that regard. Yeah, well, I mean, Donald Trump's main uh, campaign slogans were all, and, and talk was all about trade. So there's no sort of surprise in a way. I mean, he came in to power talking about trade and, and what he was going to do, and he's now doing it. Hmm. Well, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, the interesting thing, of course, is that the more um, impediments he puts in on trade and, and the more difficult he makes it to, for Labor to move into the United States, uh, the more difficult it is for the United States to meet the rapid growth in demand, which is occurring as the, as the economy expands without a burst of inflation. Uh, the governors of the US Fed, who independently indicate what their forecasts for interest rates are, show interest rates rising in the United States. The US markets, for reasons best known to them, don't show that. But it seems you know, that there really isn't any other way out with growth of demand. You're closing the trade window, or at least impeding it, make it more difficult for people to come to the United States, then really there has to be an inflationary burst in the US at some point, you'd think. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. And here's Patricia Carvalis, Drive presenter, Radio National, and a veteran political commentator. What do you make of this, uh, uh, what the Australian calls Turnbull's Dutton plot to get rid of Dutton? What do, you, what do you make of this, Patricia? It is pretty extraordinary that Malcolm Turnbull, who has just, you know, uh, yeah, sure, he's been knifed as Prime Minister. Obviously, he's pretty disgruntled about that. He blames, you know, largely Peter Dutton and his supporters for having done that, and there is evidence of that. So, you know, you can understand why he's disgruntled. He's decided to cause a by-election, which a lot of his colleagues are very angry about. Obviously, with a one-seat majority, that puts them in a pretty vulnerable position. And he's also skipped town to go to New York. So his intervention now, trying to put pressure on the Prime Minister and, you know, other front benches and others, which he's admitted to, obviously, by tweeting, uh, to, to refer Peter Dutton to the High Court, is being seen by his colleagues as pretty extraordinary. Uh, but he feels justified. He feels that this is something that has to be settled. And, you know, you've got to kind of look at the evidence here. And the fact is only the High Court can decide eligibility. So he's actually right, technically, that it is the High Court that has to make that determination. But it, it does kind of look like 
a continuation of the, um, you know, of Australia's history of of uh, XPMs um, agitating from the sides. I mean, this is what they've always done, and he's doing it too. Isn't it incredible? Yeah, look, it's it's pretty fresh. I think he's pretty wounded, uh, and I think many people in the party that I've spoken to see it as sour grapes. That's for sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That's that's the prism in which it's been seen in. Uh, does he have a legitimate point about Section 44? Remember, he's he's the guy when he was prime minister in his last hours in the last few days that did. Uh, ask for this Solicitor General's advice. Now, that came back, the argument when it first came back was it cleared Peter Dutton, but of course there are some question marks in it still. Uh, only the, only, look, I've got to say, I mean, only the High Court could determine this, but I think Malcolm Turnbull tweeting from New York about um, Scott Morrison needing to refer this to the High Court is being looked at pretty dimly by his party, but I think this is an interesting exercise in the history wars too. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull clearly has indicated he's not going to go quietly. And on this issue of Peter Dutton, he feels pretty vindicated. He feels that Peter Dutton, as I say, plotted for his demise. And as such, he feels like, you know, this is something that has to be dealt with. Now, of course, you know, they've got a one-seat majority, as you know, Alan Kohler. So uh, him suggesting this, is irritating people inside the party because it puts the government in an incredibly vulnerable position, as does a by-election in Wentworth. Now, of course, Wentworth is considered a very safe Liberal seat, but we know that a lot of that buffer has been built up by Malcolm Turnbull personally. We know that it's a pretty angry electorate that feels disgruntled about his removal as Prime Minister. So, you know, this is a vulnerable time for the government, and most people on the Liberal side now would like to move on some are not moving on, but many would like to move on and have the best chance at least fighting the next election, and they feel like this is a big disruption. Yeah, so how do you now reflect big picture on what happened to the Liberal Party uh, a couple of weeks ago? I mean, do you, do you think that that's really cut them out now of, of winning the next, next election? Are they are they done? Yeah. Look, I, I think to say eight months out of an election date that you can kind of clearly say that they're done is, is a bit fanciful knowing how politics works. I mean, you don't know what will emerge or what happen to the Labor side of politics in the next eight months. There are so many contingencies and possibilities. But if you're making an educated guess based on not only public polling, but I just I just feel kind of the way that you, when I speak to Liberal MPs, particularly off the record, of course, where they're always a little more honest about their prospects, these are a bunch of people who talk as if the election is done and dusted and they expect to be put into opposition after the next election. And, you know, it's, it's rare to hear that kind of sentiment, that kind of that feeling of we've given up. And I feel like from some of them, there is now essentially a fight for the spoils of opposition, which is why we're seeing a bit of positioning and, and we'll see, you know, the ideological wars and the positioning around um, you know, the future of the Liberal Party. It also is the parallel argument we're seeing around women and, uh, you know, bullying, intimidation. That debate is also about settling um, a culture in the party. So you only have these kinds of debates and optics when I feel a party has determined that its chances are very low. Scott Morrison, though, I think, you know, has, has been so far 
a pretty strong communicator. He does have some cut through. He's pretty good on his feet, uh, but that doesn't mean you know he can save the party from itself, given the level of infighting, the level of undermining, the level of leaking that's gone on since he started, and you know the fact that I think people are pretty smart. They can see that if he's referring to his own side of politics as the Muppet Show or that they were the Muppet Show. Apparently, they stop being the Muppet Show now. But if you even can use language like that, it indicates that you know, even the new Prime Minister thinks that some of the characters on his side of politics have, have behaved in a way that has you know, been problematic for the government. I mean, that's a, that language still astonishes me. I know why he used it. He's just trying to be honest with Australians and level with them and, and identify with them in terms of what they saw. But it also is a pretty strong indicator that he, you know, he knows just how bad this looks. The other part of it, of course, Alan, is he's been consistently asked, the new prime minister, you know, why he's prime minister, why Malcolm Turnbull had to go. And I don't know if he's really given an adequate answer on that. You know, he, he, I'm, he's very keen to show that he's got no blood on his hands. And I think, you know, he's, it's right for him to try and make that argument. But equally, that question, that fundamental question hasn't been answered. And I think it was a bit of overreach we saw in question time where he stood up when asked by Bill Thornton and said, get over it, get over it. I mean, no, who sued, maybe? It's only been a couple I, of I weeks, you know? I, well, I don't really understand why they can't answer that because uh, surely the answer is 40 or whatever it is, 38 or 40 um, losing news polls. Uh, I, I would have thought. I oh, would have thought Alan, the answer. You can't go there ever again, can you? <laughs> well, I suppose. You can't I go suppose there that's... ever again. This is the thing. Yeah. It's the it's the poison chalice. You see, Malcolm Turnbull's yeah. biggest. Well, there was there were many mistakes he made. So let's not try and put him on a pedestal. He made so many mistakes politically. But one of his big mistakes was was starting his leadership bid with that test, that news poll test. Yeah. And political no, parties right. would be smart to distance themselves away from polling and to stop making this nexus between polling and and the right to be a leader because this is the poison in our politics, this link between how you're performing in opinion polls two years out from an election to your right to be prime minister. It is It is the revolving door of prime ministerships you know, I feel like many people on the liberal side of politics, I spoke to Steve Shobo on my show not very recently, who said, oh, yep, this is just our system. It just works this way. You know, we're allowed to do this. Well, you know, it might be our system. It might be the Westminster system. But we know that Australians, when they vote for a political party, vote for the guy or the woman, it's mostly a guy, though, who is at the top of it. Like, that's how they think. That That, that is the brand that's being represented when the party is campaigning. Yeah. So to, to, to this fallacy right. around, well, that doesn't matter. Of course it matters because that's that's how political campaigns are run. They are run in a very presidential way. We may not like that, but that's actually the way they're run. And now to bring us up to date with what's going on in the markets, here's Michael McCarthy, Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets. Well, Michael, uh, the ASX... 200 has had a pretty bad run. I mean, it's, I think it's just about 10, what is it, uh, 10 falls in a row or uh, nine anyway, uh, certainly just with one with one rise in the meantime. What's going on? What's, what's caused that? 
Well, that sustained pressure reflects some of the uh, underperformance we're seeing in key markets, and in particular markets exposed to China, uh, and the pressure that we're seeing on commodity prices generally has produced a, a fairly strong downdraft in Australian shares. Add in the fact that a financial sector is under pressure as we work our way through the Royal Commission and its uh, revelations, uh, and some general pressure on markets as we go through the dividend season, and uh, it's been a pretty tough time for Australian investors. Yeah, so to what extent is it due to the trade war escalating, starting to escalate now? Well, it's one of the key factors for markets at the moment. To be clear, this is not a potential catastrophe like we saw 10 years ago when credit markets froze up and threatened the global financial system. This is a threat to growth. And even at its worst case scenario, what it means is a slowdown in growth rather than any financial disasters. Nonetheless, that has an impact on share markets and Australia hasn't been immune to that. But we're seeing signs this week that there's a bit of a shift uh, in thinking about those trade wars. And it looks like the US might be moving to the back foot. What are the signs? Well, we've heard uh, uh, this week that uh, the Treasury Secretary in uh, the US has uh, very quietly uh, sought additional trade talks with China. Now, add to what we saw earlier in the week where uh, we had uh, Canada standing firm on its negotiations and, and uh, in fact, pushing back on ideas that an agreement was close. Uh, and we also had China standing very firm and, and approaching the World Trade Organization for permission to implement $7 billion in sanctions on the US in relation to a trade dispute that's running for five years also indicates that China is standing firm. And while... Uh, and the third factor that uh, traders are focusing on is the fact we've heard nothing from the White House. The tweet stream that used to be full of uh, rhetoric around the trade wars has gone quiet on that and is instead focused on uh, purely internal issues in the US. So all of this suggests that uh, there's a bit going on behind uh, closed doors and the balance of this argument is shifting in favour of the counterparts of the US. So are you saying that you don't think that the... Um uh, this bad run of the local market for the last couple of weeks uh, is the beginning of some kind of uh, correction or bear market. No, I don't. Um, we've certainly, if uh, as we're seeing at the moment, uh, markets are edging back towards a favourable. Uh, resolution of these trade disputes for China. Uh, that's good news for Australian shares uh, because uh, anything, anytime we see a better outlook for China, the global industrial outlook is brightening. That's going to lift uh, industrial metals in particular. And of course, Australia has a major exposure there. And our high trade engagement uh, with China means that uh, better growth prospects in China mean good news for Australia. So uh, those factors, and, and as well as a couple of chart-based factors, the uh, previous ceiling for the Australian market that the index was at 6,150 although we did pierce that level earlier in the week the market's bounced back above it and is holding so both the fundamental factors around trade and the technical factors based on the chart suggest that we might be basing here and in the short term we might see moves higher for the Australian market. Uh, you mentioned the 10 years ago GFC thing I mean it's it is interesting our market uh, we're talking about it going up or down or whatever, but our market is still well below the peak of uh, pre the GFC, whereas the US market is like almost double that peak. Absolutely. Um, and that big re recovery, particularly in tech shares, has been one of the drivers uh, in the US. And while we have seen a number of uh, firms rise in that area in Australia, it was the absence really of significant technology-based companies that meant that the Australian market hasn't uh, risen as far as some international markets. Thank you.
And here's David Rumbins from Deloitte Access Economics talking about their latest retail forecast. David, okay. uh, your uh, retail forecast report uh, was headed, consumers raid their piggy banks, which uh, is true, of course, as you point out in there. Uh, savings rate, the saving rate has gone down to 1%, the lowest in a long time. Um, and which you also yes. said that that's, you said that also that's helped retailers, but the trouble is it won't help for long because it can't go any lower, can it? Look, that, that's uh, exactly right. Uh, retailers had a solid performance uh, you know, over the last few years, but uh, it has been supported by that um, drop in the savings rate or, or build up in, in debt. And um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not a sustainable driver going forward. So, um, you know, we we would hope and and uh, I, I think expect to see um, some improvement in in labour income growth going forward to give um, retail spending a more sustainable footing. Um, but the risk is if we don't get that, then uh, we are uh, embarking on a on a dangerous trajectory where where consumers are spending really just on on the um, basis of current income without without putting much away and um, and also have uh, the overhang of um, uh, inflated asset prices and, and high levels of uh, household debt. Yeah, well, I suppose the point, the, the basic point here is that, um, uh, you know, retail, the forecast for retailers and the outlook for retailers depends on wages growth coming back. Uh, that's That's the bottom line, isn't it? Look, 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 it does, yeah, yeah. So, look, you know, what, what we've seen uh, in the last couple of years is you know, a lot of the benefits have been uh, in jobs growth rather than wages growth, and, and that, that is great, and you know, particularly for those who are, who are getting jobs, that is you know, transformational. So, um, uh, so so we don't knock that, um, but, uh, you know, where, where the benefits get shared around more broadly is, is when wages growth starts to lift. And, look, there, there's signs that that's, you know, it's starting to happen, but it's 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 still it's still pretty tentative, and, and there's still a fair amount of slack in the labour market. So there's no guarantee that that will will push up. But but you know you you would expect um, you know with the rate of jobs growth that we've had, business um, conditions are pretty favourable, profits are, are good, um, businesses saying businesses are saying they'll invest. Um, not all of them are, but but you know a lot of them are saying that they'll do it. That you know the conditions are are supportive of. Um, Stronger jobs and wages growth going forward. Can you t- can you just give us a rundown briefly of the of the difference between categories? I mean, are we seeing some unusual uh, differences open up um, that you mightn't have expected? Yeah, look, what what we've seen um, over the past year is is stronger growth uh, in categories like uh, household goods and recreational goods um, and apparel. Um, in part, these. You know the non-food categories have been supported by lower interest rates, um, so um, so some credit-sensitive spending has been supported by that. Uh, in part, it's been supported by a higher um, rate of housing turnover and, and higher housing prices, you know, encouraging people to renovate or to move between houses. So that's brought along some spending. Um, uh, you know, there's also some tourism spending that's probably particularly helped uh, the apparel sector, uh, and some of that's been effectively supply-driven as well with new um, uh, you know, new entrants into the Australian market um, pushing along. Um, so generally that's been across, you know, uh, quite a lot of the non-food categories. But food itself hasn't done so well, uh, although catered food and home delivery of food is um, is doing 
uh, has done better o- over the past year. Uh, going forward, you know, we might see that evening out because we've got, you know, less of the spending growth might be driven by low interest rates and asset price gains uh, and more, uh, as, as we just discussed, will, you know, hopefully be driven by broader labour income gains. And, and so that might see uh, a levelling out of um, the kind of retail um, growth by category. Um, one of the things you did in the report was a special feature on uh, you, uh, lessons from the US. Can you just uh, tell us, um, are there, are there? do you think, parallels between between the American retail sector and market and Australia's? And if so, what are the lessons out of the US that you're seeing? Yeah, look, there's some parallels in that you know, both economies have seen um, really some um, – imbalances in, in income growth and, and wealth gains uh, uh, over the past five years. So so, so, so a lot of the, the gains have actually accrued to the higher um, higher income earners and, and those who own assets. And, and you know, that's just a, a, an extension of having you know, very low interest rates that have pushed up um, uh, asset prices. What that's meant for retailers is, is that... Um, uh, that you know, o- overall retail category growth hasn't hasn't been even uh, as well. So, so looking at the US, um, the stronger performance has been really at either end of the spectrum. It's been at, at uh, the premier end, so, or um, uh, those retailers which are offering sort of higher value products or more differentiated products. Um, they've seen really good growth uh, over the last few years, and, and store openings have been strong. Um, equally, at, at the um, at the budget end, or the, or the more price sensitive or price based end, um, their growth has been quite good as well. So, so those who are focusing on just delivering value, very uh, price based, uh, what's been squeezed has been those in the middle who, who uh, are neither the premium end or the you know the ultimate lowest cost. Um, that's the area where revenue growth hasn't been as strong, uh, and actually. Um, more stores have closed than, than opened over the last five years. Uh, you translate that to, to Australia and, and, and um, you can see some similarities and, and you can think of department stores uh, a bit as being the, the ones in the middle, the, you know, those who provide a more balanced offering, um, not the lowest price, uh, not necessarily the most um, premium um, uh, brands or service necessarily, um, and and uh, they're the ones that uh, that are perhaps getting squeezed out by the very price conscious uh, consumers at the one end, and and at the other end, you know, the the group of consumers who actually have seen their wealth go up and have the ability to spend on more premium and differentiated products. I didn't realise this, but Peter Cetera and David Clayton Thomas have birthdays on the same day, which was yesterday, September the 13th, and um, they're uh, both getting on. Cetera's 74, Dave Clayton Thomas 77. Now, the reason I mention them together is because Cetera was one of the founders of Chicago, and Dave Clayton Thomas was the singer for Blood, Sweat and Tears. Now, both of these bands were the big brass bands uh, of the uh, 70s and I used to listen to them I went to see both of those bands at Festival Hall loved them uh, thought Dave Clayton Thomas was fantastic so I'm going to play you a bit of each of them here's Peter Cetera singing one of my favourite Chicago songs 25 or 6 to 4 and 
as it's just written in the morning. It's uh, 25 to 4 or 6. He can't. He doesn't know what time it was. Uh, but he's sitting up in the middle of the night writing the song. It actually wasn't written by Sotero. It was written by Robert Lamb, but um, Sotero sang it. And um, and uh, Dave Clayton Thomas doing the old Billy Holiday number, God Bless the Child. Staring blindly into That's all from me. Have a great week.